The first reading is from Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 to 22. The Lord saw that the wickedness of humankind was great in the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made humankind on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out from the earth the human beings I have created, people together with animals and creeping things and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favour in the sight of the Lord. These are the descendants of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw that the earth was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted its ways upon the earth. And God said to Noah, I am determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. Now I am going to destroy them along with the earth. Make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its width, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and put the door of the ark in its side and make it with lower, second, and third decks. For my part, I am going to bring a flood of waters on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh in which is the breath of life. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every kind into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female of the birds according to their kinds and of the animals according to their kinds of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind two of every kind shall come into you to keep them alive also take with you every kind of food that is eaten and store it up and it shall serve as food for you and for them noah did this he did all that god commanded him our second reading comes from Genesis chapter 8, verses 6 to 12, and chapter 9, verses 8 to 17. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent out the raven, and it went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent out the dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground, but the dove found no place to set its foot. And it returned to him, it, it returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took it and brought it into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent out the dove from the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and there in its beak was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent out the dove, and it did not return to him anymore. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, As for me, I am establishing my covenant with you and your descendants after you 
and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the domestic animals, and every animal of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of a flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the clouds and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I've established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. So our story of Noah is um, where we're at this morning in our narrative lectionary series. Actually, Simon and I did a switch. Noah was supposed to be last week. I was supposed to Abraham, but we swapped. Um, but I kind of feel like it is in an interesting story to be looking at on Peace Sunday, the destruction of everything, <laughs> and, and here we are. <coughs> Our series is taking us through Genesis, and at the moment we're looking at the first sort of few covenants that are in the beginning of Genesis, within the first sort of 11 chapters or so. And most scholars sort of separate these first 11 chapters as being a later addition to like the, the, the story of Genesis or the arc of Genesis. Um, and that actually none of these stories are original. They're all borrowed and appropriated from cultures that sort of surrounded Israel and the people. And they were reinterpreted and used to explore ideas of their faith of God and um, we actually have some of the original sources in the cases of these stories, and I'm sure many of you have been given a tour by the Reverend Dr. Woodman around the British Museum to see some of them. One of them in particular is the Gilgamesh epic, which has this narrative of a flood brought on by the gods and a man and his family and group of people who are saved and build a, bo a boat, a box, and put some animals in it and some food and and then uh, live <coughs> um, so Noah this story of Noah is a is one of these interpretations specifically of this Gilgamesh epic story um, and much of these early stories are to simply well not simply but to try and frame the cultural and foundational ideas of the people of Israel in a kind of cosmic perspective of where do we fit in the grand scheme of life, the universe and the divine. They provide this um, environment to Israel's faith and life that give us a glimpse and, and give us understanding of what was going on and who these people were and are. Um, they're as I said, they're sort of cultural foundations. They're not falsehoods. In our Western world, it's very difficult to kind of imagine truth beyond the empirical. They are poetic and they are artistic narratives and they provide opportunity for self-understanding for the, for the people. 
And these early chapters in Genesis 1 to 11 essentially bring together two traditions that you've probably heard us talk about before, the priestly tradition and the Yahwehist traditions. Um, and that's why you have the two versions of Genesis. And in the Noah narrative, it actually blends these two together. I don't know, like we only had a few passages from this morning, but if you go away and read the whole story of Noah, you'll notice that actually it repeats itself, does like double. Um, and there's actually some contradictions within it as well. See if you can spot them. It's kind of like a spot the difference thing as you read through. This narrative of the flood sits in the middle of these stories of covenant and relationship with God and engagement with God. And it is this great disruption, this kind of almost like a reset. I don't know if you've ever watched any of the comedian Eddie Izzard. He's one of my favorite comedians, but he talks about like the flood being like the etch-a-sketch end of the world. I don't know if any of you had an etch-a-sketch when you were a kid. I'm showing my age now. When you shook it, it's like, oh, I don't know what that is anymore. I want to get rid of it. Um, and I love the idea of like, that's kind of where God got to. So he just didn't recognize what he'd made anymore. God didn't recognize what they'd made anymore. They didn't, it didn't, like, I wonder, did they look at it and feel, this doesn't bear my image. These people do not bear my image anymore. These stories are about judgment and rescue, justice, righteousness, and grace. And figuring out how the people fit into that narrative and that story. <coughs> so as I said, it reflects these older narratives and doesn't really help to start thinking about historicity, but rather is artistic attempts to articulate these deep questions that we have as humans within us. Like, who are we? How do we fit in this? Is there a God? What does God look like? How do we understand God given our current context? No, it isn't ab about telling, <laughs> and it really shouldn't be about a Sunday school story, which again, I don't know how many of you had Noah as a Sunday school story. I've actually painted a mural on a child's bedroom of Noah. <laughs> Just, <laughs> I now feel very uncomfortable about that. Um, and so we have to think about, it's not about a historical story, it's about a truth that was being explored and told by the, the people of Israel and figuring out, trying to understand who they were. So we have to think more about the intention behind why this story was written, why this story was included, why this story was essentially written twice, in fact, why there are these two versions, why have they been brought together, what is the intention that's happening here? These stories are a means of voicing or Israel voicing their faith, a faith in God, a faith in a God whose values are clearly about justice and righteousness and purity and truth. And when those values of justice are being challenged by God's creation, God's heart is turned against us, turned against such violence. We see God's sense of justice here wrestling with God's sense of grace and faithfulness to what has been created. And faithfulness wins. 
but only just. God wants to destroy humanity and everything that is evil within it. And he, God almost starts over. This is a, quite a terrible story of, from our perspective now, God doing quite a terrible thing. And then we see Noah was pleasing to God. And God finds this opportunity for grace to be exerted. It doesn't really explain why Noah is pleasing, whether he was slightly less violent or what. But God still decides that God needs to punish, that there still needs to be this destruction. And what's interesting is the phrases that are used or the languages that's used for the human corruption is the same word that's used to describe what God is doing in God's destruction. Humans are corrupting the earth and God's destruction is the same corruption. So it's like the punishment is fitting the crime. And then at the end, what I find really interesting about this story, and I don't think I realized it really until reading it this time, <coughs> is that we get to the end and they all come out the ark and there's this lovely promise. And God's covenant is with the people, is with the humans and with creation. And the promise to never destroy everything all over again. But God says that people haven't changed. That violence is still there. Can you, Andrea, can you bring up the final reading again? I think it's in that bit. But anyway, it says that Humans are still wicked and they will always be wicked. Maybe back one. Oh, I can't find it now. <laughs> uh. No, maybe it was in like one of the other sections, but there's a part in, in the Noah story where he, God says, that humans are always wicked. They're still corrupt. They're still wicked. They're not going to change. So in this story, humans come out, like even the one righteousness one, the one, the one who found favor with God, who meant that humanity could carry on and was not going to be completely wiped out. God still looks at this group of people who are good enough to be saved and go, wickedness is still there. People haven't changed. Violence is still going to happen, but I am going to remain faithful. I am going to choose grace. I am going to make a covenant with these people. And there is no expectation of return. Noah hasn't done anything really to deserve this covenant. God is just promising to be faithful and to choose grace and to choose love. Human beings don't change, but apparently God does. So when we're thinking about the intention of these stories and why they were written, it's important to think about the context in which they were written into. So as I said, these stories were like around, these stories of flood and salvation and 
and uh, exploration of who the gods or God is are around and the people of Israel and the scribes and the writers are reinterpreting these stories for themselves in the context in which they're in and the general understanding is that these stories were composed around the fifth century BCE or the like between the fifth and the third so right smack bang when the people are in exile when they've lost everything they've lost their identity they've lost their home they've lost and they are in a foreign land and they are trying to maintain who they are and their identity and their sense of self and these stories start to appear How would these stories have landed for those original audiences? I look at Noah and I kind of, I feel like this particular story sort of sits within the, the suffering servant kind of idea of who God is. There are a lot of different ideas of who Israel should be and who God is that come out through this time of exile. You have... Nehemiah, who is very nationalist, very get rid of your foreign wives, purity, a doubling down on in terms of like national identity. You have other passages that essentially victim blame Israel, saying, well, you, it's because you didn't do enough offerings or you were too evil. And this is why you have been sent into exile. And then you have the Isaiah story and the Isaiah narrative that says that Israel is this suffering servant, that the suffering happens as a result of the world's wickedness because the world is wicked. Yet the world will find salvation and hope through the people of Israel and that there is a story of redemption there. And I look at the covenant that is made with Noah, this idea that, yes, the world is wicked and it's going to continue to be wicked, but I, God, am not going to continue the violence. I'm going to break that cycle. And I think that's a really interesting story that has come out of a space of loss of identity, of, of exile, of being far from your ancestors' home. It's a story that ironically seems to say that God is not violent, humans are. And I feel like these writers were trying to imagine a new reality of nonviolence, of a God who doesn't simply meter out punishment, but who has changed and wants peace and wants to remain faithful to their creation. And so we come to the rainbow. And it's not just a nice, pretty rainbow. Like we think of God's rainbow these days as a promise, isn't it really nice? In the original, as you read it, he's talking about his bow, that God is talking about their bow, their literal like bow, an arrow bow. They, God is hanging up the weapon of destruction and saying, I'm not going to literally disarming themselves. God is limiting God's self 
in spite of man's violence, in spite of human inclination to violence. God is limiting God's self. And so we look again at the justice and righteousness of God and the grace of God, and we see which takes precedent, which has greater value. And so I, quite naturally, this brought me to the question of suffering that is often thrown around when we think about God. The question of why suffering happens and why God does nothing. And it makes me think of this now, I'm now thinking about the Noah story and the fact that God is limiting God's self in spite of violence and that that is a choice of grace. God chooses to disarm God's self. God chooses grace and peace. Chooses not to return violence for violence. And there are consequences to that. And so what then does that mean for us? I feel like we are all of us in some way living in exile. I mean, you could say we're living in exile from God's kingdom right now. <coughs> that the kingdom is not yet here. It's here, but not yet here. Some of us are almost literally living in exile, not able to go home, not able to be where we grew up, not able to be in the places that are familiar to us. Some of us have chosen exile chosen to leave that place of safety to go somewhere else to be somewhere else some of us is not a physical thing some of us it might be in our heads and in our hearts that we feel exiled from the comfort and the things that we want once new things have changed and they're never going to be the same again and we live in this new space trying to figure out what our identity is again trying to figure out how we fit in this world and what on earth God has to do with any of it. And I look at the story of Noah and the people who wrote it and I think about what they were living in and the spaces that they were in and what they were inspired to write and to imagine. And I feel inspired to write and imagine. What could my new reality be? What could a reality in this world be, a reality of peace, of renewal, a reality where God is promising not to meter out retribution, but to offer grace and love and peace and to invite us into that journey, into that space from our places of exile. The story of God turning God's judgment into God's grace, not because of any human endeavor or repentance, just shows God to be more fully gracious than perhaps we could imagine. God changes God's mind twice in this story. The first time he's, God is going to destroy everything and doesn't because of Noah. And then promises, I'll never do this again. I'm not going to destroy everything again. God freshly embraces 
all of creation. The covenant is with the people and with creation. So what God can you imagine? What story of God would you write from the place that you're in now? I'm going to finish by reading a collect that I wrote. A couple of weeks ago, I went to a college staff conference. So all the Baptist colleges together got together. We went to a staff conference um, and we were led uh, by uh, an Irish poet who taught us how to write collects. Um, and I wrote a few, but it's quite interesting. And this is my reflection on what it is to be in exile and to pray to this God, this reimagining of God. Hidden one, known yet unknown, full of justice, righteousness, and yet mercy, terrifying and disarmed. I want to see your peace, your grace, your nonviolence win. I want to know that there is another way to be. And I will follow in your ways. Amen. Let's all pray together. Lord our God, we come before you now, the great God of this earth, the God of all ages, the God of Noah, the God of Abraham, the God of David, the God who has overseen this world for centuries countless, who has seen the rise and fall of empires, the God who is not caught out or caught sleeping by any event. We come and pray before you now. We kneel before you, our great God. We thank you that we can come and kneel before you as our beloved parent, as our beloved father, that we do not fear to come, but we come before one who, who loves us, your children. We pray for our nation at this time, as we see the continuing expressions of, of mourning and grief for the late Queen. We do pray that out of these sad times, good things might come. We pray that as people express common ideas, as people queue together, as people talk of memories shared, that this might turn into a greater fellowship among people in this nation, that we might remember the things we have in common rather than the things that divide us. As people talk about the duty and service of the late Queen, may you instill a spirit of service in each one of us, that we might seek to do good for those around us, that we might seek in every way to help others. As we think about death and dying, we pray that that might open conversations too, that we might not shut away death and dying as a thing to be feared, a thing to be ignored, a thing to be hidden away in hospitals, 
But as a thing that comes to us all, and that we might find help and comfort in how we should approach these things. Comfort all who mourn at this time, especially comfort those who find their own grief for their own loved ones stirred up at this time. We pray for the king and for the royal family as they too have their own particular grief, that even as they have to fulfil public duty, yet they mourn their mother and grandmother. And as we pray for our nation, we pray too for the new Prime Minister and for the government. May they too seek to serve the people. We pray for them that they will seek the good of the nation, that as they, they govern and begin to consider the matters that affect us all, that they would work for justice, that they would work to protect the vulnerable, and that they would work in service of our nation. We pray for this, our church. We pray for our ministers, Dawn and Simon, as they work among us. We pray that you would guide us as we consider the future and what we must do. We pray that you will build us up as a congregation, that we would have love and concern one for another. Help us to bear with each other. Help us to help each other in our griefs and sorrows, in our trials. Help us to be patient. Help us to love one another. And so our God, in these coming days, we pray that you will be with each one of us. Meet us at our point of need. Comfort those who are in need of your comfort at this time. Calm the fears of those who, who fear for the future, those who are anxious. Lift up the spirits of those who are down in heart. Be with those who are sick. Cause each one of us to put you at the centre of all we do. Be with us in our daily lives, in our daily dealings with those around us, with our families, our partners, our friends and our work colleagues. May all that we do honour you and give us a sense of you in our daily lives. Help us in all this, we pray. Amen. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all, evermore. Amen.